0: We are a resource for learners, including every member of the Livestrong Cancer Institute's on-track educational pipeline, from middle school to residency. We are a growing collection of interviews, talks, and experiences that uncover the myths and the uncertainties of cancer and careers in cancer in order to empower and inspire generations of thinkers and leaders. This is Cancer Uncovered, an education and empowerment podcast by the Livestrong Cancer Institutes. Viruses are formidable foes, and in many ways, public health interventions, particularly related to infectious diseases, a lot of it is about how everyone needs to pitch in to sort of take care of the community.
1: To get COVID illness around the time of having a surgery, or to get COVID illness around the time of receiving chemotherapy, really does increase the danger, and we want to do everything we can to to drop that down.
0: But that's why vaccines are arguably the major medical breakthroughs and public health breakthroughs because they're so effective and they're so effective because they're taking advantage of biology.
1: The benefit of receiving the vaccine begins to develop only a few days even after the first vaccination is given.
2: Welcome to Cancer Uncovered. I am Nick Smith-Stanley with the Livestrong Cancer Institutes at UT Austin's Dell Medical School. 2020 was a challenging year to say the least. In a year of political division, natural disasters, and civil unrest, the COVID-19 pandemic dominated the news and our personal and professional lives. Since the arrival of the first confirmed case in the United States in January 2020, over 100 million people around the world have been affected by COVID-19, including over 2 million deaths. In response to the pandemic, Businesses closed, schools and universities went virtual, and social distancing became the new norm. But there's hope. In December of 2020, not one, but two COVID-19 vaccinations were released. Shortly thereafter, federal and local governments began a phased distribution of the vaccines to healthcare workers and patients over the age of 75 who have high-risk medical conditions. This month on Cancer Uncovered, I spend time with faculty members from Dell Medical School to learn about the current state of the pandemic, the vaccines, and how each impact patients with cancer. I talked with Dr. Elizabeth Matsui, Professor of Internal Medicine and Population Health, and a pediatric allergist, immunologist, and epidemiologist who is a leading international expert on environmental exposures and their effects on asthma and other allergic conditions. Dr. Matsui also serves as Director of Clinical and Translational Research and is the Associate Director of the Health Transformation Research Institute. Also joining me is Dr. Declan Fleming, Assistant Professor of Surgery and Perioperative Care. Dr. Fleming serves as Division Chief of Surgical Oncology at Dell Medical School and is the Associate Director of Surgical Services at the Livestrong Cancer Institute's. He has initiated and conducted clinical trials in the care of patients with melanoma and cancer of the colon, breast, pancreas, and liver, and is active in medical education. This is Cancer Uncovered. So let's talk about COVID. How did we get from just hearing this story on the news to really having this this serious pandemic that's been going on here for almost a year?
0: This was an enormous challenge to start out with. That being said, there are countries in the world that have contained it. And they are, you know, diverse. And I think because they exist, it points to the fact that we have failed in so many ways to control it better. And, you know, I'm a public health practitioner, along with being a pediatrician at heart. And what we failed in was are sort of centralized public health messaging and management of the problem and i think the the failure in the kind of area of of public health is also because you know we have a culture that's is less about what you might need to do as an individual to take care of your community and in many ways public health interventions Particularly related to infectious diseases. A lot of it is about how everyone needs to pitch in to sort of take care of the community.
1: I don't think we can underemphasize the risks of COVID for cancer patients. We know that the people that are most susceptible to having a really bad experience from COVID, that is, a prolonged illness or Organ failure or even death are people that have what we call comorbid conditions. And that is other health problems that make them more weak or susceptible so that they're not able to recover from the viral illness of COVID as well. And clearly, anybody who has a cancer has a significant comorbid condition. And it's interesting that that affects things in two ways. Number one, the cancer might make the person. Less resilient. So they're not able to overcome another illness as well. So that if you get sick from COVID and it begins to put stress on, like your lungs, that stress on the lungs where your oxygen level goes down puts stress on other organs. And if you're already weakened because of either having a cancer or going through a cancer treatment, that makes you more susceptible to a worse outcome. And we've looked at that in surgery. And we found that people who have major surgeries who have a COVID infection are more likely to have a worse outcome from that surgery, meaning other infections or even death where we might not expect that to happen otherwise. And so COVID is a big deal to surgical patients as well as being a big deal to patients with cancer because not only are they more susceptible to getting the infection and having worse problems from it, but they're more susceptible to longer-term problems making their recovery longer from it.
0: The only other thing that I would mention is that it's very hard for human beings to conceptualize exponential transmission or spread. We see something like, oh, there are 10 cases And we don't understand two things, that one, those were the 10 cases that were identified. And early on in the pandemic, if there were 10, there were actually probably really 100. And then each of those cases infects on average, you know, roughly two people. And then each of those infects two. And so things rapidly spin out of control. So you have to intervene and have everybody on board to intervene at a time when it may be hard to convince people that it's really as big of a problem as it is because what they see is only those 10 cases. They don't see that there are 100 and it's hard for them to imagine what exponential growth looks like.
2: This is probably way harder to answer, but do you think we're doing better as a whole in kind of putting the the collective before our our own individual I guess freedoms as some people like to say?
0: I think so. But, you know, what's happened is we have a new variant of the virus now that is more transmissible. And so that means that what we have been doing before, which, you know, has been, and this is only my anecdotal experience, but if I've been out and about, like, you know, had to run in and pick up a prescription or something, there's really been universal mask wearing and I think there's less controversy about mask wearing now. There's more evidence that's come out that, sadly, more and more people know someone who's had COVID, had long-term symptoms from COVID, or been hospitalized or sadly even died from COVID. And that, I think, changes the calculation that people may make in terms of how their behaviors may affect the risk of others being infected in the community
1: we have to err on the side of being cautious. Being cautious means practicing really good hygiene, choosing to wear a mask both for themselves and for others around them, and practicing appropriate social distancing and not putting yourselves in a circumstance where they're likely to be around other people that might have the infection and not know about it.
2: Can you talk a little bit about How COVID has had just this disproportionate effect on racial and ethnic minority groups.
0: Yes. And I can't remember reading this explicitly, but I remember when this, first of all, people were not thinking about this initially, which was a problem and but not surprising. And when you know public health community and clinicians and scientists started thinking about this, oftentimes the knee-jerk response is oh let's look for a genetic cause and really if you understand anything about you know disparities and inequities the immediate obvious reason is because people of color tend to be essential workers and so they have a whole different level of exposure than you know someone like me who's in a more kind of privileged environment. I mean, I am a healthcare worker, but I'm a subspecialist in the clinic. I'm not taking care of patients in the emergency room. So their exposure risk, those communities' exposure risk is sky high. And then if you live in a crowded apartment because your income is limited and you can't afford to live in a place where someone can self-isolate with their own bedroom and their own bathroom, then the household attack rate is going to be much higher. You also may be afraid to seek medical care or not able to seek medical care because you are uninsured or undocumented or underinsured. You will get likely different treatment if you try to engage with the healthcare system that can also lead to worse outcomes. This isn't a public health crisis you know where suddenly, oh look, we have disparities. These disparities they exist in my line of work in asthma, and they've existed all along, but they tend to be kind of swept under the rug and are not sort of seriously thought about. and And I think it comes down to another example of it can be easy for people who are in a position of power and privilege and resources to not worry about others and. Aside from the obvious important morals and ethics of worrying about others, disparities affect everyone in the community because it means hospitals get filled. And so if someone has a motor vehicle accident, they are not going to get the same level of care that they would have gotten before. And I think it's very hard for people to understand you know, how connected we all are in that way. So vaccines work by exposing your immune system to a part of the virus or a dead version of the virus, an altered version of the virus, so that you get the immune response that's protective, but without getting the infection. And so that's the fundamental sort of concept behind vaccines. And there are lots of different you know, flavors of vaccines, as I think you probably picked up on, in terms of like whether you pick a piece of a virus or a killed virus to inject. But that's why vaccines are arguably the major medical breakthroughs and public health breakthroughs because they're so effective and they're so effective because they're taking advantage of biology, which is much more powerful, you know, than trying to create a drug that then you treat the virus with after the infection has happened. So there are two vaccines that have been approved under an emergency use authorization by the FDA in the US. People know them, I think, by their trade names. There's a Pfizer-BioNTech and um, the Moderna vaccines, and they both use the same technology. And these are the first mRNA vaccines to be really used that are uh, on the market. What we mean by an mRNA vaccine is that the vaccine has the RNA that encodes for part of the SARS-CoV-2 virus or the COVID virus. And the part of the virus that that mRNA encodes is what's called the spike protein. And I think people are familiar with what coronavirus looks like now because its picture is everywhere. It's called Corona because it has all of these spike proteins on its surface. And the spike protein is what it uses to enter our cells and infect our cells. And then it divides in our cells and there are more viruses that are produced and then they go and infect other cells. And I know the listeners can't see your face, but it looks like I'm telling you like a horror movie type story. So this mRNA encodes the spike protein. The reason that we want to induce an immune response to the spike protein is because if you can have an antibody identify and glom onto the spike protein, it prevents it from attaching to its receptor on the cells and infecting the cells. And so that's sort of the key part of the virus that we want to target. And so the mRNA is packaged inside a lipid nanoparticle. So that matters because mRNA is actually quite unstable. You know, if you have some mRNA lying out on your desk, it just degrades pretty quickly. So it needs to be stabilized, but it also needs to be packaged in a way that the mRNA gets into a cell so that your cell's machinery will translate it into the spike protein. And so both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines have mRNA for the spike protein that is in this lipid nanoparticle. The other thing that the lipid nanoparticle does is that your immune system needs a danger signal in order to really start ramping up antibody production. And those are called adjuvants. And adjuvants make vaccines elicit better and stronger immune responses. And so the lipid nanoparticle also serves as an adjuvant. And so when you are injected with the vaccine, those lipid nanoparticles get taken up by cells. Those cells start to, their little factory starts to turn that mRNA into spike proteins. And there are two things that happen to the spike proteins. Those cells actually start to display the full spike proteins on their cell surfaces. And then they also... Along with that, chew up the spike proteins into smaller bits and display the little bits of the spike protein on its surface. And then this activates a couple of types of cells that are a part of your adaptive immune response, B cells and T cells. And B cells are the ones that go on to make antibodies. T cells help B cells make antibodies, but T cells also, there's a kind of T cell that can also kill the viruses directly.
1: The vaccine is remarkable. It has worked better than we expected, especially these mRNA vaccines. And the benefit of receiving the vaccine begins to develop only a few days, even after the first vaccination is given.
0: So they have about 95% efficacy. So what that means is in a clinical trial setting, one to two weeks after the second booster dose, people who had gotten the active vaccine compared to the placebo or the fake injection were 95% less likely to have COVID. And that's not to be infected,
1: but it's to be infected and have
0: symptoms compared to those who got placebo.
1: I've been doing medicine and science for a long time. And as a uh, cancer practitioner, we look at curves that look at how a treatment might benefit a group of people, whether they get it or not. And when I looked at the results from the clinical trials of the vaccines, it's almost like nothing you've ever seen before. The first couple of days after a person gets a vaccine in these trials, some people were randomly assigned to get a placebo. That is a treatment that doesn't do anything versus getting the treatment And neither the patients nor the doctors knew who was getting what, so there wouldn't be any bias or any cheating in things. And for the first couple days after people got the vaccine or the placebo, the curves of whether or not a person got infected were exactly the same. And then at about 10 days after the injection of the vaccine, the curve just separated dramatically. It was like a fork in the road. And the people that, that didn't get the vaccine, that got the placebo, they kept on the same trajectory of getting infection. And the people that got the vaccine, they just stopped getting the infection. I looked at it over a three-month period of time. I counted the number of people in this trial. And out of like 11,000 people got the vaccine, 14 people got infected. It's just incredible. That doesn't mean that the risk of getting an infection is zero, but it just changed the world for those people that got the vaccine.
0: One thing that I want to point out is there were decades of science behind mRNA vaccines before this hit. This tells you how important it is to invest in basic science research and this sort of work, because we were poised. We, I mean, like I get credit for that, right? We, we as a global community, we're poised for this to happen. There had not been sort of the same sort of opportunity at the same time that this much work had been done and that we were poised to go there. The several other factors that made it happen so quickly, one is the sequence of the spike protein was available more than a year ago now, very quickly after the pandemic we became aware of the the magnitude of the problem in China. And a faculty member at UT, Jason McClellan, described the structure, like the three-dimensional structure of the spike protein. And so it became, you know, very clear, here's a sequence, we know what mRNA sequence would encode for it, we can, and again, I'm not a lab researcher, there's probably a black box, right, where they Do some fancy chemistry to make these mRNAs, but they knew the sequence or the code that they needed to use. And they had already had some work with these lipid nanoparticles. And so they were very quickly able to make some vaccine.
1: I do think that there are some special considerations that cancer patients in specific need to uh, take before receiving the vaccine. All right. Cancer patients can be in some circumstances, immune suppressed, their immune system isn't working as well. So that makes them more susceptible to other types of infection. But we have to remember that a vaccine, to get the benefits of taking a vaccine, you have to have an immune system that can react to the vaccine, to develop antibodies and the like, so that you can develop protection. So if a person's immune system is really, really suppressed, whether it be from the disease itself, like if a person has a leukemia or lymphoma, or if they've received chemotherapy and it's suppressed their immune system, they're not going to be able to develop the beneficial response to the vaccine that they would have otherwise. So if we look at a person, let's say a person is going through chemotherapy for a cancer. One of the things that the doctors are doing routinely is they're measuring their blood count and they look at the white blood cell count. And the white blood cells are a component of our immune system. If the white blood cell count is really super low, there's no way in the world that we would believe that that person could get a benefit from receiving a vaccine because you have to have an immune system that is ready to recognize what's going on with the vaccine and respond to it. So a person who has a suppressed immune system and anybody who's considering a vaccine, whether they've got they're a chemotherapy or, or an oncology patient or somebody else, we need to know that their body's ready to respond to the vaccine to create that beneficial response. So cancer patients really need to be screened to know that their immune system is in the right place to respond appropriately. I have a lot of hopes for us as a nation and for our world around COVID. They're big hopes because this has been a, a big dangerous disease and a big problem. What I really hope is that these vaccines in their various forms are able to be given as quickly as possible to as many people as possible, because these vaccines work. And so I want to see everybody get the benefit of getting that vaccine. And that means we have to have not only the production of the vaccine, but also my prayer is that we figure out a way to organize ourselves to start getting people this, these vaccines in a fair, in an equitable way. So nobody's denied this, that ought to be receiving it. And that we recognize that it's not just important for the science of making a vaccine to have been accomplished, but we've got to have the mechanism of getting this to people in place. And I want to play my part in protecting people that can't be protected. And again, my hope and my prayer is that even if people don't think that they're in a high risk category for getting horrible COVID and dying from it, even if they say, man, this is not a big deal disease, my hope is that people are going to say, it might not ever be a big deal to me, but it might be a big deal to somebody. I'm going to do my part to protect those vulnerable people and that we're going to have people embrace that. And we, we get very, very serious about continuing high production levels. And we get very, very serious about making ways to deliver the vaccine. And we get really serious about our responsibility for protecting other people. And we're going to show our love for people that way.
0: So I hope we set up mass vaccination sites. And that, I think, is a part of what's starting to happen um, in different states and what will happen in Texas. I think we want to be at a minimum at a million vaccines per day. I think ideally we want to be closer to three million a day in order to be much closer to, I'm using air quotes, normalcy by the summertime. But rapid dissemination of the vaccine is really, really critical, especially with this variant is brewing. So that's my hope.
1: You know, my hope is that if anybody's on the fence about getting the vaccine, that they'll get off the fence. And again, for themselves, but also for people that they know, and also for just strangers, you know, we're supposed to show love and compassion for the people that are most vulnerable. And I really hope people embrace that opportunity in doing this.
2: Thank you to Dr. Matsui and Dr. Fleming for sharing their insight into the ongoing pandemic. To learn more about their work and the contribution Dell Medical School is making in the response to COVID, check out our website at dellmed.utexas.edu. Dr. Matsui is also the co-host of her own podcast called The Effort Report, which covers life in academia. You can find the podcast on Twitter at The Effort Report. I'm Nick Smith-Stanley with the Livestrong Cancer Institutes, and this has been Cancer Uncovered. For more information about the Livestrong Cancer Institutes, check out our website at delmed.utexas.edu. You can follow our director on Twitter at S. Gail Eckhart. Eckhart is spelled E-C-K-H-A-R-D-T. If you'd like to learn more about the Livestrong Cancer Institutes or have ideas of topics that we can uncover, please email us at Institutes at delmed.utexas.edu. Please make sure that institutes is plural. And of course, if you like our podcast, make sure you subscribe.